My name is Gabe. I have the privilege of serving on the Connect team, and my wife and I lead a community group. Today's scripture passages from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15 in the NIV. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in a synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have reached their full reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others, people, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. Thanks, Gabe. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you guys this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at Reality of Ventura, and I have the privilege this morning to teach through our passage in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we are, we've come to the last, uh, the last verse of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, in the following weeks, we're going to examine some parables that Jesus taught on prayer. Uh, but this morning, we've come to the part of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus touches on temptation, evil, and our deliverance from it. So this morning, let's pray as we enter into God's Word this morning. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your Word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path that provides us with the instruction that we need for this life. And so, Lord, I just want to pray this morning as we examine your word together, Lord, that you would illuminate the truth that you want to speak to us. Lord, believe that you are present among us, that you are present with us right now. And God, I just ask that as we look at these beautiful words, that you would use them to illuminate our hearts, that you would use them to inspire our minds this morning, and that you would use it to bring transformation in our souls today. Thank you, Lord, that you move and you speak through your word, and I just pray, God, that you would um, illuminate it this morning. Pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be glorifying to you, Lord, and if there's anything this morning that is not of you, we just ask that it would fall away. Speak to us now. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Oscar Wilde once famously said, I can resist anything except temptation. I think this quote perfectly captures our understanding or perhaps our confusion surrounding the idea of temptation. Temptation is complicated and there are no shortage of voices and opinions about it. Now, there are some people who take a comedic approach to temptation. They treat it like a joke. Uh, 
consider for a moment the all-you-can-eat buffet, an establishment built on the foundation of temptation. The concept was invented in 1946 in Las Vegas, Nevada, because of course it was. Uh, And the advertisement for the very first all-you-can-eat buffet was called the Buckaroo Buffet. The advertisement said this, for just one dollar, which is a whole nother conversation, for just one dollar, you can eat every possible variety of hot and cold entrees to appease the howling coyote in your innards. That was the first advertisement for the first all-you-can-eat buffet. And if you've been to an all-you-can-eat buffet, you know the feeling. Just standing there in front of an endless array of different foods and cuisines. The whole idea of the all-you-can-eat buffet is whatever you want, however much you want, do it. Satisfy your hunger. Any way you want to do it. If you want to use broccoli cheddar soup as a dip for your egg roll, do it. If you want to eat five lobster tails smothered in nacho cheese, do it. If you want to have seven bowls of soft serve ice cream topped with nine brownies and just a fat piece of cheesecake on top, do it. Whatever you want, do it. See, temptation is often used to sell us things, to provoke our desires, to market products, and give us what we want. And this view of temptation paints temptation as something exciting, something exhilarating, something to be embraced. And yet there are others who adopt a more, I would say, calamitous approach to temptation. They take temptation very seriously. And typically, this view of temptation kind of narrows it down to a few specific sins, usually surrounding sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The viewpoint here is that temptation is fundamentally and inherently evil, and its very presence will lead you down a path of certain destruction. Now, this begs us to ask the question today, what is temptation really? And perhaps more specifically, what do we do when we are confronted with temptation? Do we run? Do we avoid it? Do we hide? Do we fight? Do we capitulate? Do we just give in to it? What do we do when we face temptation? As I said earlier, we're a little bit more than halfway through our series examining the Lord's Prayer. And these are arguably some of Jesus' most powerful words about prayer in the whole Bible. These words have been repeated and recited for thousands upon thousands of years. But there is a danger in how we approach this prayer. Because it can be easy, and maybe you were raised this way, it can be easy to treat the Lord's Prayer the way that Dorothy treats her slippers in The Wizard of Oz. Like, if I just say this prayer enough, if I just repeat these words enough, if I just say them over and over and over and over again, then God's going to show up and give me what I want or do something, right? It's as if the power were in the words themselves, like some sort of holy enchantment. But that's not the way that prayer works, and that's not the reason that Jesus gives us this model prayer. In fact, Jesus actually doesn't say When you pray, say these words. He doesn't say that. He says, when you pray, pray like this. 
Jesus isn't teaching us necessarily what we should pray. Jesus is teaching us how we should pray. He's not saying pray these words specifically. He's saying pray with this heart. Pray like this. And really, that's what this series is all about as we approach the topics of God's fatherhood and his holiness and God's kingdom and his will as we reckon with the need for our spiritual sustenance and forgiveness and deliverance. We're simply asking the question, how do we pray like this? Now, last week, we uh, looked at the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our debts or our trespasses. And this morning, we move into a protection from future sins. In order to understand how we pray about temptation and in the middle of temptation, we have to understand a few things. We need to understand the nature of temptation. We need to understand the nature of ourselves. And most of all, we need to understand the nature of God. The first thing I want to look at this morning is the truth about temptation. The truth about temptation. You see, many of us tend to think about temptation like a trap. Something that we are lured into, often against our own will or control. We think about it as something deceptive. And from the perspective of the devil, that is certainly true. Temptation is a trap when it comes to Satan. Because his purposes in temptation are malevolent and evil, and his end goal is destruction. Jesus said, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We see that just a few chapters uh, earlier in Matthew, right after Jesus is baptized, if you remember the story, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. He goes under the water, and when he comes up, the clouds separate, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, rests on Jesus, and there's this loud voice from heaven that says, this is my Father in whom I am well pleased. And then literally the next verse, it says that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And thankfully, Jesus did not succumb to Satan's temptations. Uh, But the intent there, what Satan was trying to do in the wilderness with Jesus, was destructive. He was trying to destroy Jesus' identity as the beloved Son of God. So that's the, the, the perspective of Satan when it comes to temptation, is it certainly is a trap. However, from God's point of view, temptation functions less like a trap It's more like a test. In fact, the word used here for temptation, the Greek word pyrasmos, is often used to describe the experience of testing or trials. Uh, James says in James chapter 1 verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, that same word, of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The Apostle Peter wrote in his letter, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What does this show us about temptation? Well, it reveals that God's purpose in temptation is not destructive, it's instructive. How can that be? Because tests, as Scripture defines them, do two important things in the heart of the Christian. They reveal and they refine. Tests reveal our qualities, our values, 
and even sometimes our deficiencies, for good or bad, tests draw out what matters most to us. If you've ever taken like a job placement test, that's what that test is designed to do. It's designed to reveal where you're strong, maybe where you're not strong, and where you're supposed to go. That's the same thing that happens in the tests that we experience as Christians. But tests do more than just reveal our hearts. They also refine our hearts. And God's intention in allowing you and me to experience temptations and tests is to strip away that which hinders us from becoming the people that we were meant to become. I love this quote from J. Oswald Sanders. He talks about temptation. He says, severe testing is not the mark of divine disapproval, rather the reverse. Only ore, which bears precious metal, is subject to processing and crushing. Only alloy, in which there is valuable metal, is placed within the refiner's fire. Since God has pledged himself never to subject his children to tests beyond their ability to bear, a severe test is in reality his vote of confidence. See, it can be easy at times to think about temptation as punishment. Like, God is mad at me because I messed up. I made a mistake, and therefore God is allowing me to experience trials or temptations. Like, I did something wrong, I got on God's bad side, and now all of a sudden, he is just coming at me with temptation after temptation, or he's left me to experience all these temptations. And if that's you this morning, you need to hear this truth, that who God loves, he refines. Who God loves, he refines. It's not because God is angry. It's because God loves us, that he's, he allows us to be refined by tests and trials. Because God is after the diamond in your soul. He's after what's most precious within you. Now this verse does not mean that God himself is the one tempting us, okay? It's important for us to understand that. God is not evil. God's aim is not to trick us or trip us up or cause us to stumble. But God does allow us to experience moments and seasons of testing. There's a story in the book of Luke. It's right before Jesus is arrested and handed over to the authorities. He says this to his disciples, um, specifically Simon Peter. He says, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What we see in Jesus' words here is that in his sovereignty and his authority and his love, Jesus allows his followers to be tempted and tested by the devil. Why does Jesus allow this? Because Jesus knows that what Satan has designed for our destruction, God can use for our instruction. And the devil's tactics, his schemes, can actually result in our transformation. But the choice is ours to make. Because with every test comes a choice. A choice that can lead to your destruction or your instruction. A choice that can lead to your annihilation or your transformation. Choices that can either result in your ruin or your refining. 
John Owen describes temptation this way. He says, temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. I'm sure that many of us have thought about temptation as being our poison or our destruction. But how many of us have thought about it as being our food or our exercise? Now make no mistake, there's a warning here. There's a warning that temptation can lead us down a path of destruction and we should heed that warning. However, if we choose to trust God in the midst of temptation, we can actually be catapulted into deeper growth and relationship with God. And what the enemy means for evil, God can actually turn for our good. Now at this point, you might be asking yourself this question. Okay, so if Jesus allows testing, if he allows temptation, and if our decisions in temptation can actually produce good in our lives, then why does Jesus instruct us to pray, lead us not into temptation? It's a good question to ask. And it's easy sometimes to get tripped up on the language of this text, but we have to understand the meaning of it. In light of the original language, the meaning of this prayer is essentially this. Don't let us give into temptation or don't abandon us to temptation. God, don't abandon me within temptation. Another way of saying it is this. God, please help me from turning this situation, this temptation, into something sinful. It's important for us to get that this is not necessarily a prayer of avoidance, okay? This is a prayer of deliverance. It's not a prayer of avoidance. It's a prayer of deliverance. And it's important to make this distinction because there is a temptation, no pun intended, to believe that the best way to deal with temptation is to never be tempted. And there's a very loud voice in Christian culture that says the most effective way to deal with temptation is to avoid it altogether. If you're a 90s church kid, you know this very well, right? That, that truth cuts very deep. If you grew up in the 90s in church like I did, there was this predominant movement and it said, don't read secular books, stay away from secular movies, burn your secular CDs. That actually happened in the 90s. Your non-Christian friends at school, they're going to corrupt you. Culture is going to corrupt you. There was this whole movement in the 90s that was built around temptation avoidance. It was like anything that could possibly tempt you, cut it out of your life. Like, 90s Christian kids were cutting things out of their life before it was like, Instagram, cool. And 20 years removed, it doesn't seem like that strategy worked out very well. We wonder why so many millennials are deconstructing their faith now. It's because all we told them was to stay away from temptation. To stay away from anything that might possibly corrupt you. It's important for us to understand today that when it comes to dealing with temptation, avoidance is not the goal. Avoidance is not the ultimate goal. 
Now, I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying that we should willingly throw ourselves headlong into precarious situations because it might somehow benefit us spiritually, right? That is foolishness. We just did like a month-long, many-month-long series in Proverbs on why that's not a good idea. There are certainly many situations in life that we should keep at arm's length. But the truth is that temptation is everywhere. It's all around us. Temptation is on your phone. Temptation is in your phone. It's at your home. It's in your job. It's on the 101 freeway. Can I get an amen? Temptation is in the parking garage. Anywhere there's an opportunity to satisfy our own desires at the expense of God's values, therein lies temptation. It simply cannot be avoided altogether. And the thing is that it's not supposed to be completely avoided. James doesn't say, avoid the devil and he will flee from you. James says what? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That story we just, uh, we just looked at earlier where Jesus is led into the wilderness. Jesus didn't go into the wilderness to avoid temptation. Jesus went into the wilderness to confront temptation. So if temptation cannot be completely avoided, then the only choice we have is to deal with it. All of us have to deal with it. But there's a problem. And that's the second thing that I want us to look at this morning, which is our trouble with temptation. Because let's be honest, temptation would be a lot easier to deal with if it were always obvious to us. If it were easily identifiable all the time, it would be a lot easier for us to deal with temptation. But as all of us can attest to, it's not always obvious. Often temptation is obscured. It's sneaky. Rarely do we find ourselves in the middle of a tempting situation and think, you know what? I am, I am being tempted right now. Right now in this moment, I am being tempted. See, the main problem around temptation is not its existence. The main problem is our failure to recognize its existence. And one of Satan's most effective tactics in temptation is to blind us to the fact that we're even being tempted in the first place. And that is one of the reasons why this prayer that Jesus gives us is so critical and crucial and important for our Christian life. Because when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we are drawing the attention of our hearts to the presence of temptation and acknowledging our need to be delivered from evil. This is a prayer of vigilance for our own hearts. It's an understanding that when it comes to temptation, I cannot be left to my own resources. My heart needs help. I can't do this on my own. And the heart of this prayer beckons us to ask two very important questions about ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, where are you most vulnerable? What are your weakest points? Where are the areas where you are most susceptible to temptation? Now, I have a confession to make. I do not like being vulnerable. I don't know if I'm the only one in the room who doesn't like that. But uh, I don't. I don't like being vulnerable. Uh, my wife and I, we recently moved to East Ventura. And of course, as you do when you move, we made the customary pilgrimage to the land of Burbank, California, 
to pay homage to the Swedish furniture mecca that is Ikea. Which, by the way, in and of itself is an exercise in temptation if you've ever walked the Ikea showroom. But I'm sure that all of you, to some degree or another, have experienced the dark side of Ikea. You know what I'm talking about. It's the assembly of the Ikea furniture. And it always seems so easy, doesn't it? So simple. Those cute little drawings on the instruction manual. It's all a lie. Dare I say a lie from the pit of hell. Before you know it, right, you are trapped in a cardboard box full of frustration and defeat. And every time this happens to me, my wife, God bless her, walks up. She usually puts a hand on my shoulder and she says, do you need help? She knows that I need help. My three-year-old daughter knows that I need help. The neighbors in our neighborhood who have heard me yelling at the furniture know that I need help. But what do I say? How do I respond in that moment? It's fine. I'm fine. Everything is fine. See, when it comes to temptation, one of the easiest lies to believe is that we don't need help. And often, we treat temptation the way that I treat assembling IKEA furniture. We think that we've got temptation under control, when in reality, temptation actually has us under control. If that's you this morning, if you're like me, you need to hear this today. Vulnerability is not your enemy. Vulnerability is not your adversary. Vulnerability is actually your opportunity. And the only areas of weakness that will leave you ensnared in temptation are the ones that you are willing, you're not willing to admit. So it's worth asking yourself this morning, what are those areas for you? Be honest. Where do you struggle? For some of you, it might be sexual. For others, it might be bitterness or jealousy or maybe it's resentment towards someone. It could be greed or pride or selfishness. It could be the temptation to lash out at your children or maybe it's to lie about your job performance or perhaps it's to charge that thing to your credit card that you know you're not going to be able to pay off. Only you know what those areas are in your heart. Where are you most vulnerable? But there's a second question that we need to ask as we address the issue of temptation for ourselves. Where are you least vulnerable? Where are you the strongest? What areas in your life do you think to yourself, I would never do such a thing? I would never do that. I would never cheat on my spouse. I would never become an abusive parent. I would never become addicted to pornography. I would never do fill in the blank. You see, it can be very easy to approach our world of temptation in our own strength and in our own self-confidence with our own morality and our own merit and our own effort. But it's precisely these areas of perceived strength that can often become our biggest blind spots. Oswald Chambers once said that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. 
There's a story of a rich old woman in the south of England who needed to hire a chauffeur. She drove a rather large uh, Rolls Royce, and the road to her home uh, traveled through some very precarious cliffs. And so this woman put an ad in the newspaper, and she got three responses. And in the interview process, she asked the drivers the same question. How close could you get me to the edge of the cliff without placing me in danger? The first driver responded and said, Ma'am, I am a great driver and I know Rolls Royces very well. I can get you to within one foot of the edge of the cliff. The second one said, I can get you to within six inches of the edge because I'm even better at driving Rolls Royces. But the third driver paused and said, Ma'am, if I were your chauffeur, I wouldn't take you anywhere near the edge. Guess which one of them got the job? You see, often I think our approach to temptation is like that of the first two drivers. We think, this is probably unwise. This goes against conventional and spiritual wisdom. But I'm strong. I've got this. I'm going to get as close to the cliff as possible, and everything will be fine because I am strong. But Paul warns us against this mindset in his letter to Corinthians. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is saying here that when it comes to temptation, we must be guarded in our weaknesses, yes, but especially in our strengths. This means that we avoid situations that are especially tempting. We've already established that it, we, can't, we can't avoid every temptation. We can't get away from every temptation because it's everywhere. But we can exercise wisdom when it comes to the spaces and the places where we are most susceptible to temptation. This warning from Paul should be sobering. It should be a sobering reminder that our efforts to stand against temptation are simply insufficient. The desire of our flesh is too powerful to overcome with human strength. But in the next verse, Paul offers us this beautiful encouragement. He goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The encouragement here is that you are never out of options when it comes to temptation. Sin is never the only choice. Evil is not the only way because God will always be faithful to provide the escape from temptation. See, the confidence and strength needed to resist temptation, it doesn't come from looking inward at ourselves. It, rather, it comes from looking upward. We don't search within for self-confidence. What we do is we ask for divine deliverance. Lord, deliver us from evil. What this verse reveals is that Jesus is the escape from temptation. Jesus is the one who provides the way out. Jesus is the one who provides deliverance. But how? How does he do it? How does Jesus provide the escape from temptation? 
And more importantly, how do we take it? There's three things I want us to look at. First, Jesus provides us other people. He gives us community. You see, Satan's MO, his modus operandi, is isolation. And Satan does his most destructive and powerful work in our lives when we are convinced that nobody else is dealing with the thing that we are dealing with. When we think that we are the only ones struggling. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe in your mind and in your heart, you're thinking, nobody knows what I'm dealing with. Nobody knows the struggle that I have right now. Nobody understands the temptation that I am facing. And you need to hear this morning that that is a lie from the pit of hell. Paul says, again, to, to reference in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And while our temptations uh, might look different on the surface, all temptation is fundamentally the same. It's the temptation to find joy, peace, satisfaction, and pleasure in something other than the person and presence of Jesus. And friends, all of us, every single one of us in this room today, we are all in that boat. When it comes to temptation, we're all fighting the same battle. So you need to hear this morning that you are not alone in temptation. But it's important to remember that Jesus does not give us community for the sake of commiseration. And although we share the same fundamental struggle with temptation, God doesn't put other people around us so that we can just complain about it all the time. Like, you're miserable? Oh, I'm miserable. That's great. Let's be miserable together, right? That's not the purpose of the Christian life. It's not so we can uh, get together and wax poetic about how miserable our lives are. God gives us community for the sake of sanctification. God gives us community. God puts other people in our lives so that we can be held accountable and that we can hold others accountable so that we can grow together as followers of Jesus, because if you could see your blind spots, they wouldn't be blind spots. We need the vision of other people. A couple years ago, my wife and I bought a trailer, a travel trailer. And if you want to experience true pain, anxiety, and suffering, try to, just try to park a travel trailer in a campsite, okay? It's, it's a pit of despair. But let me tell you what, it is almost impossible to do that on your own. It's at least the trailer we have. It's really hard to park that thing by myself. It is so much easier and more effective when I have somebody behind me who's watching out for hazards that I can't see. Like, hey, there's a tree over there. There's a fire hydrant over there. Like, it's so much easier for, to, to, to accomplish that task when I have somebody who can see into my blind spots. And it's the same way in the way that we walk out our faith as Christians. We need other people. We need people around us that are willing to say, hey, there's danger over there. There's a hazard over here. Watch out. I want to ask this morning, do you have those kind of voices in your life? Are there people around you, God-fearing, Jesus-loving people in your life that you have given permission to, to speak to your weaknesses, to see into your blind spots? If not, find them. Find community. 
join a community group. That's one of the reasons why we have community groups in the first place, is so that we can be together in community, so that we can grow together as followers of Jesus, so that we can uh, have people in our life who can watch out for our blind spots and tell us when we're in danger. Community is important, and Jesus gives us people, other people around us. But it's more than just people. Jesus also gives us prayer. Not only does he give us communion with others, a community with others, he also gives us communion with himself. So don't just talk to other people about what tempts you. You should do that, but don't let it be just that. Talk to Jesus about it. I know that that sounds painfully simple, but it's so true and it's so important. Talk to Jesus about your temptation. Name it. Call it out. Call it for what it is. Be honest. Bring whatever it is you're struggling with into the light with Jesus. I love how Paul does this in his letter to the Romans. He's so vulnerable in how he brings his temptations and what he's dealing with into the light. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul's saying, God, even though I know it's bad, and even though uh, it is bad, and even though I know that you know that I know that it's bad, I still want to do that thing. I'm acknowledging it before you. I still want to do that thing. God, I'm so jealous right now. That coworker of mine got got the house that I wanted. This other person in my life, they got the car they wanted. So-and-so got the marriage that I so desperately wanted. This other person got the family that I so desperately wanted. God, I just want to be really bitter at this person or that person or that political group or that group of people. God, I just want to escape all this pain that I'm feeling. God, I just want to feel good again. God, I just want to feel anything again. It's really amazing what can happen simply by calling a spade a spade. Even simply acknowledging the presence of a particular temptation can completely change your relationship with that temptation. Because when we invite Jesus into the middle of our temptation, into the middle of our situation, it can cause us to see temptation for what it really is, which is a false promise. Because lastly, this is the final thing I want us to see, God gives us promises. God gives us true promises. God gives us promises that are more powerful and satisfying than the promises found in temptation. You see, sinful temptations, they always come with a promise attached. If they didn't, they would not be tempting. Temptation uh, always, temptations always have a promise associated with them to give us something that we want or need or feel that we need or something that we desire. The temptation to be bitter promises that you can satisfy your inward need for justice by becoming your own judge against those who have hurt you. The temptation to be judgmental promises that you can satisfy your own need for value and worth by looking down on other people. The temptations found in sexual immorality 
They offer the promise that you can satisfy your need for pleasure at the expense of somebody else's body. It's important for us to see this morning that the truth about temptation and the promises found within it is that they always demand a heavy cost. There is always a heavy, heavy cost associated with temptation. Temptation demands the payment of our innocence, our integrity, our virtues, our values, our character, our relationship with others, and above all, our relationship with God. And when you give in to temptation, it's like entering into a bad short-term contract. Temptations are a lot like predatory loans. They carry a heavy price tag. They might promise you something immediate in the short term, but the cost is never worth the benefit. The truth for us this morning is that temptation will always leave you spiritually bankrupt. Temptation will always render you spiritually empty, but not so with the promises of God. Because the promises of God come paid in full. The promises that God makes are guaranteed because Jesus, who lived the life that we could not live, Jesus, who resisted every single temptation the devil tried to throw at him, Jesus, who willingly chose to pay the price for our evil, for your evil, for my evil, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus paid the price for you and for me. And it's there on the cross as Jesus is hanging there that he is met with the ultimate temptation. The temptation to save himself. Many of the gospels account what was said to Jesus while he was hanging on the cross and there's a common thread among them. It's this statement. If you really are the Messiah, save yourself. If you really are the Messiah, pull yourself down from the cross. This was the ultimate temptation. And the truth is that Jesus could have done it. Jesus could have pulled himself down from that cross. He could have said, enough. I've had enough. I just want to give in. But he didn't. Jesus resisted that temptation so that you and I would have the power and the victory and deliverance from the temptations that we experience. Because of the cross, because of the sacrifice, because of Jesus' blood that was poured out, you can be delivered from the evil promises of the devil to the eternal promises of the deliverer. This doesn't come through our own wisdom or by our own effort or in our own strength, but rather through faith and trust and belief in Jesus, the Savior, the Waymaker, the Deliverer. See, if you choose the promises offered in temptation, in sinful temptation, it will always lead to shame, guilt, and regret every time. But if you trust in the promises of God, it will always lead to love, joy, peace, 
and forgiveness. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. In fact, a lot of the times, it might seem harder to choose God's promises over the promises that the devil makes through temptation. But I want you to hear this morning that it's so much better. It's so much better to chase after the promises of God, the promise of everlasting covenant and relationship and satisfaction in Jesus, the promise of healing and restoration. It's so much better than the false promises that temptation makes. So today, put your faith in Jesus this morning. Put your trust in Jesus this morning. Put your hope in Jesus this morning. And know this morning that he will lead you out. He will lead you out of temptation today. He's faithful to deliver you. Jesus is the way of escape. Let's pray this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you did not abandon us. You did not forsake us. Instead, you willingly chose the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you chose to suffer and die in our place. And thank you, Lord, that because of that, we have the power to be set free. That we have the power to walk in freedom today because of what you did for us, Jesus. And this morning, Lord, I just feel led to pray for the person in the room right now who is just feeling the weight of failure. The person who maybe feels this morning like they've just given, given, given themselves over to temptation and it seems like there's no way out. It seems like there's just no way of escape. I pray for that person right now that you would open the eyes of their heart, that you would open their mind to see you, Jesus, that following you is the way out of whatever situation we find ourselves in, no matter how dire or hopeless or difficult it seems. And I pray, Lord, that we would follow you out of temptation. And Lord, I also feel led this morning to pray for the person who thinks that they've got it all together, to pray for the person who thinks that they've just got it. They've got, their own strength is enough. Lord, it's clear that our own strength is not enough to resist temptation. Lord, we need your help. So I ask that there would be repentance today. I ask that there would be a turning today. I ask that there would be a dependence today upon you as the deliverer, the one who delivers us from evil. Help us, Lord. We need you. We need you to come and move in our hearts and in our minds.